0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. Stay ahead of all the big games in the best league in the world, the Premier League. With the latest odds, form guides, expert opinions and more. The fans are the players at Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrooks.com, 18plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply.
1: You're listening to Upfront with Andy Cole and me, Sam Matterface on TalkSport. This is the show that takes you into the world of the number nine. And we find out exactly what it was like to be a top-flight striker. At Newcastle and Manchester United.
0: That's a great ball through for Andy Cole who hits it first time! It's another magic Manchester United moment!
2: It's Andy
1: Cole! We'll find out about the pressure of being a striker, that feeling when the ball hits the back of the net and the sacrifices they had to make. You're listening to Upfront with Andy Cole. When someone asks you to name a number nine from the Premier League era, I don't think it would take you too long before they mention this guy's name. The number etched on the back of that famous black and white jersey, the bold white number on the back of the bright red Manchester United shirt. The sheer number, the volume of goals, 290 in 648 games. Third only to Alan Shearer and Wayne Rooney in the all-time list of Premier League goalscorers. A Newcastle hero, a treble winner, a partner to York, a solo artist, quiet, complex, deadly. No matter how you look at it, Andy Cole, when it comes to number nines, you have to go some way to get anyone better than you, don't you?
2: (laughs) Uh, I don't know, that's for you to say.
1: It is what it is, but I mean, all the possible honours in the English game, five Premier League titles, two FA Cups, Champions League, League Cup, First Division, Uh, Title with Newcastle, PFA Young Player of the Year. Did you always think right from the very start that you were going to have a career that yielded you honours like that? I didn't believe
2: that what you just reeled off there, I would end up finishing my career and achieving. I think growing up as a kid, your dream is always to be a professional footballer and your dream is always to play at the highest level. But ultimately, if you do play at the highest level, that doesn't mean you're going to win all the major honours. And also, like like I just said there, um, what you've reeled off there, I forgot about the first division championship with Newcastle, it'll be fair. You know, the PSA on, I only remembered about that the other day when someone mentioned it to me. So there's a lot of stuff I've actually forgot that I've actually achieved. Uh, that's, that sums me up as a nutshell.
1: You went to, to Lillishaw, didn't you, and graduated from that centre of excellence that's no longer there now. Was was that where you sort of knew that you had to be a number nine? Were you always destined to be a number nine?
2: Uh, no, I wasn't, to be fair. When I went to Lillyshaw, so yeah, that's how I went there because I, I mean went through all the trials and scored a few goals in the trials and they perceived me to be one of the best players in the country at the time. So, no, I wouldn't say I would always wanted to be an out-and-out centre forward. No, I always had a, a little bit more to my game.
1: What was your definition of a of a number nine? of a striker, of a centre-forward.
2: Someone who runs in the box and wants to score goals. Uh, wants to score scruffy goals, tap-ins. I mean, a yard, two yards, you've got to be brave to keep wanting to run in there. You get chances, you are not want to take them all. And uh, someone who's prepared, just what the socks are for their team. I mean, that's 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 the way I, I look at a good, honest number nine. You know, prepared to work extremely hard for his team, even when he's going for a bad, bad, bad patch, sorry. And it's not all about him scoring goals, it's about his team ultimately winning the match. And if you can contribute towards that without scoring goals, you know, you're doing your job.
1: Were you precious about the shirt number? Did you ever nah. kick up a fuss over not getting nah. it? For me, that's a nonsense. Um,
2: a shirt number makes you play no different. don't play any, makes you play any worse or any, uh, any better. Um, shirt number, it, for me, they, it was a nonsense. When I went to Newcastle and I wore the number eight shirt, Half a season I was there. Kevin changed it in the summer. He said, I want you to wear the number nine. I was like, it makes no difference to me. If I wear the number eight, it makes no difference if I wear the number nine. Then he mentioned say, about all the great number nines at like Newcastle and whatever. So for me, it was like I'm not really fussed. I mean, if I'm going to score goals, I'm going to score goals. If I'm not, I'm not. So I'm not fussed about numbers.
1: You mentioned earlier it was about the team and it was about scoring goals for the team. But is there a certain level of selfishness that is required to be a top-level striker?
2: Yes, there is. Because however you look at it, that that is your job. So if you're wearing a number nine shirt, what we're talking about here, ultimately people look at that number nine and say, "Right, if the number nine is not doing his job, scoring goals, what is he doing? And that was always the old-fashioned way of looking at a number nine. Number nine's got to score goals. That's why he's got a number nine shirt. So, yeah, ultimately, there is a lot of pressure on you to score goals. But contributing in other ways as well, for me, is very important as well.
1: How much did you have to work on your movement, on your finishing, and how much of it came naturally to you?
2: Uh, my movement, that's, that was that was just natural. Finishing, you're, you're always work on your it? Uh, and that, that's the way it should be. because Ultimately, you want to improve all the time. All, all the other stuff, you know, you always, you always want to improve on. And that, that was me. I, I always want to improve on every facet of my game.
1: What did you do? Did you, did you speak to coaches? Did you take it upon yourself to look at other strikers and, and copy or take bits of their, their, their best attributes? How did you go about self-improvement?
2: Self-improvement for me is hard work and dedication. Uh, when I first joined Manchester United, you know, and, um, Brian Kidd was the coach. Assistant manager coach, and he sent me, like, if you think scoring 41 goals is going to be good enough at Man United, you're mad, basically. And I looked at him as if to say, mate, I'm not being disrespectful, I'm doing my job scoring goals. But I was a kid, and I hadn't learned any part of my game yet. When I went to Manchester United, I understood what he was talking about there. You know, it's not all about scoring goals, it's all about your interplay, it's all about making space for others, you know. How can you make space for others? How can you bring other players into the game? You know, how can you improve yourself as a player in the match and continue to improve? So, so for me, yeah, it, it was a case of like watching other players like me, or out watching other players who played a centre forward but didn't play centre forward like I would have played centre forward. So you always try to take something off someone else, you know, and bring those things into your game.
1: Let's warm you up with a couple of quick fire questions just quick answers to some of the things about your career get a sense of who Andy Cole really is um, what was your favourite goal that you scored I know you've, there's quite a few to choose from 290 of them but what was your, what, what's the one that always comes back to you when someone asks you what's your uh, favourite goal
2: I, I most probably Miss the one against Tottenham Cole in space brings it
0: down it's Andy Cole oh it's a great goal from Andy Cole it's beginning to look United's championship now, he was onside. The control was excellent, and he was so cool. Wonderful composure, Cole, who missed all those chances four years ago in that last day drama at West Ham.
2: He's taken that one. I really enjoy that goalie, but for so many different reasons. Uh, in '95, we lost the league uh, to Blackburn, you know, West Ham. I mean, Ludo McCloskey was unbelievable, making saves after saves, and I had a good couple of chances, you know, and he produced saves out of those. And I took a lot of flack after that game, you know, people was blaming me, and so oh, I've got to take my chances, and X, Y, Z, and that's football. When I got the goal against Tottenham in, in 99, that was a big leveler for me. Mm. I felt like it had gone in full circle then.
1: Well, yeah. What do you think your most
2: important goal was? The all-important goals. i thought people felt to understand. Whatever goal you get as a centre-forward for your team, whatever team it is, it's important. If you end up losing the game or winning the game or joining the game, every goal for me was an important goal.
1: Who was your favourite strike partner?
2: Oh, see, that one's a tough one. I learnt so much of Peter Beers. Peter Beers was a hell of a player. and I mean, an unbelievable player. Uh, Cantona was a very, very good player as well. Top player. My most enjoyable one was Yorkie. All well left
0: by York, fed by Cole. Back to Andy Cole from Dwight York. United, the combination between Cole and York was out of this world.
1: Who was your hero growing up? Who did you look up to? Sir Regis. It's
0: a nicely weighted little pass for Ali Brown, who's turned inside Brian Green off. On for Regis. Oh, what a goal!
1: What was it about him that, that, that made you look at him and think, what a guy? The way he played the game,
2: the way he conducted himself, total gentleman especially for uh, a young black kid growing up, aspiring to be a professional footballer, aspiring to play at the highest level. To look at his dedication, you know, and like I said, the way he carried himself for the flack he took to make my path easier in the game. You know, it was an inspiration to me just to watch him play football and the way he played it.
1: Which defender was your toughest opponent? Who did you try to avoid? Who gave you the the roughest ride? None.
2: I, I didn't try to avoid anyone. I respected them all. There was loads, Tony Adams, when I went back to play against Arsenal. Uh, Des Walker, Martin Keown, Sol Campbell. There, there was loads, loads of them. But the battle was good. You know, that's what you want at the highest level. Now,
0: wasn't oh, away? Cole is in the middle. Cole, one 0 cold what a freezing afternoon it's Liverpool caught Cole. Robert R what a start for Newcastle Robert Lee the provider and Cole stretched out and turned it in
1: you left Arsenal after a handful of appearances went on loan to Fulham then on to Bristol City you were really caught the attention of the football public during that period but it was February 1993 when you were bought by Newcastle and Kevin Keegan, that that life changed? And and I imagine that life changed almost immediately. 12 goals in your first 12 games, two hat-tricks, clinching promotion. Did you know it was going to click at Newcastle even before you signed?
2: I wasn't sure if I was going to go to Newcastle, to be honest. I spoke to Lee Clark, and he always used to say to me, oh, you'd be brilliant at Newcastle. And I always used to say to him, Clark, it's a long way from London. Obviously, I went to Bristol. But I was still between London and Bristol. I said, it's a long way up north. And he kept saying, oh, you'll love it, you'll love it. So when, when Kevin came in for me, I thought about it, spoke to Clark. He, he was desperate to get me up there. So I, I never went in there with a preconceived idea that it was going to work out and I was going to get the goals that I got. You know, I ended up getting 12 in 12. And, and that's the craziest thing about football. I, I never knew what to expect. But I, I was very, very fortunate that the team was already promoted. You know, and I was fortunate to it into a very good team and get the goals that I got. Is this it, Cole?
0: It has to be, surely. Number forty, Andy Cole goes into the history books. Look at the grin. Look at the applause. But look at the man's record. He goes past Hughie Gallagher and George Nobledo, and he went through the Villa defence in the classic style. What a way to
1: get a record. 93-94, you scored 41 goals, beating 70-year-old record held by Huey Gallagher. Unbelievable numbers, really, when you, when you think about it. What was your mindset at that point? You'd just gone into the Premier League. First time you'd been in the top division regularly. And you got 41 goals in a season. Was it almost impossible for you to miss? Is that how you felt? Did you feel like invincible at the time?
2: <laughs> Going into the Premier League, it was the unknown. I'd never been there before. A lot of the players that are playing, we've never been there before. So for me personally, it was going there, have a good guy, go yeah, and see where you end up. You know, I always believed in my own ability, but we're talking about the Premier League now. This is the, the best league in the world. I, I didn't know what to expect from myself, I didn't know what to expect from my teammates. But all I did say was, I'm going to have a good guy go and see how I get on. Without anyone really
0: having the slightest inkling. Manchester United swooped to pull off a record transfer deal and bring Newcastle's Andy Cole to Old Trafford for six million pounds.
2: I thought we could take it on, and you've got, you know, you've got to allow me to do that. If it doesn't work, you know, I know what the
0: implications are. I know, I know what the bottom line is. Everyone knew we were looking for an English striker, and I think we've got the best. There's no question about that. But his penetration and his well, his goals in the last what is it, 78 and 81 games or something like that. some phenomenal record.
1: When you left midway through that 94 95 season, it was like a massive shot for all of us, draw dropping. You know, no one really saw it coming. Was it in the offing for a while? How did it happen? And, or was it something that happened just sort of very quickly and you just went, yeah, I'm going for it?
2: No, it, it, was, um, it was totally out of the blue. See, a, a lot's been made out of this as well, especially recently. There's been a lot of talk regarding I our, our instigated the move and all that. That's a lot of nonsense. I didn't instigate any move. Everyone knew that me and Kevin had a little of a little bit of a problem earlier on that season. And I don't think I enjoyed what Kevin said to me. Kevin didn't enjoy what I said to him. And the relationship after that wasn't the same. So when Kevin accepted the offer, I knew nothing to that Monday night when I got a phone call from the guy who, who was representing me that at that time saying that, oh, the deal's on for you to go to Manchester United. So all this nonsense about people saying, oh, yeah, I instigated the move and that. No, it's all a nonsense. You know, I didn't instigate nothing because so I knew nothing about it till the Monday, the Monday night.
1: Why did you and Kevin fall out? We just
2: had some cross words. You know, we, we played Southampton on the Sunday, and it was a long trip, and I was I was tired. I was really tired, and we went up to London because we were playing Wimbledon in the uh, League Cup. He asked me on on the Monday about training if I fancied training. I said to him I didn't. I was tired. Kevin used some explicit's at me. Um, to explain that he wasn't happy. So I uh, used a few explicits at him to say, OK, not a problem, I'll go in. And then he told me a few explicits to leave the building. And so I said to me, it's not a problem to me. That that's how, that's how it happened between me and Kevin.
1: Was there any sort of part of you that later on, when Manchester United, the team that you were in, were vying for the title with Newcastle, who had quite a big lead and it got let slip, was there a part of you that thought, have a bit of that, Kev?
2: Wing in a uh, mix of it, yeah. Because ultimately, why I joined Manchester United, the club that I wanted to play for, I meant want to play for, was to be able to win the Premier League. So while I'm vying against Newcastle United and Kevin Keegan, of course I'm half saying, yeah, go and have a, have a little bit of that. With, I want to win the Premier League. You know? And it's, it was as simple as that. So yeah, once you're in that mentality and, and um, your competitive juice, you start to play, that's what happens.
1: Turning up at Manchester United and being the main man, isn't, isn't easy. It's not, it's not easy, but loads of people have done it and, and not been a success. What pressure did you feel from the moment you walked in the door?
2: Man no, United is a different football club. It's a different football club to every club I've played for. I think mean, the manner it's run, the history, every, everything about that club is, is totally different. And I, I didn't know what to expect. because I'd only been in the Premier League a year, year and a half. I did a full season, the season I got 41 goals, and then left in the January after. So it wasn't like I was a season pro at Newcastle, or season pro in the Premier League. You know, so I was going into Manchester United believing that it's going to be no different to Newcastle. You know, so expectation levels are always there for Man United, you're expected to win. You're expected to compete, you're expected to win, you're expected to win, expected to win in a certain manner. And as a centre forward, you know, you're not just expected to score goals, but you're expected to do things in a certain manner. And yeah, it, it was very, very tough because I... I I didn't know what to expect. And it took me a little bit of time to work it out due to my lack of experience as well.
1: Who helped you during that period? Everyone else. Everyone
2: was unbelievable. And I mean unbelievable. Um, coaching staff, uh, players, everyone was absolutely unbelievable with me to try and help me get through this period. They all believed me. They all believed that I could be at Old Trafford and score goals.
0: It's gigs to take the corner for United. Up there. Oh, yes, and he's done it and the welcomes the first successful strike by the 7 billion pound man
2: it's Andy Cole's first goal
1: there was always talk when you were at Manchester United of more strikers different strikers the bid for Shearer competition from Solskjaer eventually van Nistelrooy coming into the team there was probably more talk than even that and Did you thrive off the threat of somebody coming to take your shirt? I've
2: I've always said if anyone came into Manchester United to make Manchester United better, so be it. It's it's as simple as that. Yeah, of of course, it's it's a threat. Of course, you've got to try and up your game as well. But if it makes that team better, that's the way it should be because Manchester United need to be where they need to be at. So I, I, I didn't take it personally. Naturally, of course, I was disappointed, but... You know, that's the nature of the beast.
1: Coming up next on Upfront with Andy Cole, he tells us why Dwight York was his favourite strike partner.
2: He was so intelligent. We never end up making the same runs, we never end up getting the same space or anything like that. And when I say it to people, me and him, never even, we never hardly spoke on a football pitch. It was
1: perfect. You're listening to Upfront with Andy Cole. Baby.
0: Andy Cole by Piper, the MC, represent the mic and we rock Oh, well left before, by your fed by Cole. Back to Andy Cole from Dwight York. Fantastic <laughs> v- goal for Manchester United. Parting. Eight minutes to the same half gone. Andy Cole the scorer. The combination between Cole and York was out of this world.
2: Marvellous goal. Andy Cole, break it down. Tell the world my name. Who's that Andy Cole? I blaze the scene. show the goals Keep my eyes on the prize.
1: I want to take you back, if I can, to some of those major moments at Manchester United. One of the ones that I can recall clearly was the goal in the new Camp that you scored against Barcelona. You are involved in the build-up on the halfway line. There's a telepathy between you and, and Dwight York. You, you run into the corner afterwards. You get your hair ruffled by the fans. What was that period like to be in the Manchester United team at that point?
2: The easiest part of football you could ever ask for. That team, uh, it was a special team, you know. It was a team that I was I was so proud to be part of. The, the football was it was stunning. It was absolutely stunning. I think We we definitely enjoyed each other's company, uh, on and off the football pitch. But the way we trained, the way we played, it was therapeutic. You know, we we all want the same thing. When you want the same thing, football comes a little bit easier. Uh, but I think the way the way we performed showed that as well. So for me personally it was, it was it was a great honor to be involved in that team.
1: The relationship that you had with Dwight York looked instinctive from the outside looking in. What, what was he like as a partner and what what did he have that brought the best out in you?
2: Yorkie had um this bubbly character his he, he, his joy for life. Yorkie one of the funniest people I've come across. You never knew if Yorkie was upset or down or whatever, because he never, ever gave you that impression. And because we're polar opposites as well, that's what made it even better. You know, being polar opposites as people, we used to laugh and, you know, we used to enjoy each another's company. But I always say to people, as as a footballer, he was so intelligent. We never end up making the same runs. We never end up getting the same space or anything like that. We always knew where we was going to be at. And when I say to people, me and him, we never hardly spoke on a football pitch. Because you know? I knew where he was, he knew where I was, and it was, it was perfect. So when people look at the goals and say, oh, you must have worked on. No, we didn't work on anything. It, that was just meant to be. I mean, that, that was sent from the heavens. And it was meant to be that partnership was meant to work just like that. York. That's a brilliant pass for Andy Cole.
0: Well, talk about being on the same wavelength.
1: It's fascinating to hear you talk about Dwight. I've been lucky enough to spend a bit of time with him, and he is just one of those guys that doesn't stop smiling. Um, You can't always rely on him to turn up on time. Did you have to give him a nudge to ensure that he got places at the right time? Because I did hear that you had to act as an alarm clock occasionally.
2: Yeah, (laughs) I I, I was his alarm clock. You know, because he knew he could always alarm me, whatever it was, whatever time. If he forgot something or. I mean, he's running late for training, put his kit out, or bring his kit out, and leave his kit somewhere, or whatever it was. You know, that that's the partnership we had. We wouldn't. It was a relationship as friends as well as everything else. So I, I mean, when when I look back on some of the stupid things he, he used to end up doing and end up being late, and that I, I have to laugh because that's the way he lived his life.
1: Sheringham and, and, and Solskjaer get all the attention for that Bayern Munich moment, but. The contribution that you and Dwight made, not only to that game, but to the games and the build-up to that, cannot be underestimated. I mean, the Juve game, Well, I mean, that was a, an unbelievable turn of events. 2-0 down, in the Stadio dell'Alpi, a, a team with Conte as the captain and Zidane and Inzaghi, and somehow you crafted a way back. I mean... Was that because of the character? Was it because of the fact that you were, man for man, a better team than Juventus at the time? Or was it some sort of tactical piece of tinkering from the manager? What happened?
2: Character. We believe uh, we was as good as Juventus, if not better. And there was a fantastic team. So we, we always believed in ourselves. We always believed that we were capable of beating any team, it didn't matter who it was. When when you talk about, uh, obviously, uh, Oli and... Teddy get all the plaudits for the Munich game. They thoroughly deserve because they got the two match winners and that's that's never going to change. But leading up to that period, me and Yorke were, you know, I don't want to sound rash or anything like that. We were unbelievable in Europe. We were the most feared partnership in Europe. No one to play against Manchester United as a team. No one to play against me and Yorkie up front. So, yeah, it, it was a special front for Manchester United had at the time.
1: What was it like being in a four? Because everyone talks about partnerships between two two players. You actually had a quite a good on-field partnership with Sheringham at, at one stage. You and uh, Dwight obviously then took that on and became a sort of well-known pairing as well. But four of you all competing for two places, how was, what was the dynamic like in the dressing room? Dynamic was
2: really good. And I mean, really, really good, you know, loads of banter. Everyone used to enjoy each another's company.
1: Even you and Teddy? Uh,
2: me, me, and Teddy's relationship was like this. Once we cross that white line, we're playing for the same thing. When we're off the football pitch, I don't need to communicate with you. You don't need to communicate with me. So that's the that's the way it worked. I remember the manager had to intervene at one stage. Because, I mean, I nearly had a tear up with him in the um the dressing room. So the manager had to intervene and said, "Look, you know, obviously I know you don't talk, but we can't take it any further than this."
1: Let's go back to that goal that you were talking about as your favourite goal we're talking about 1999 and you know Sheringham Solskjaer as we said scored the goals that secured that in moment that that European Cup and they deserve all the credit in the world for that but you effectively won the club the title that season uh, having come on at half time against Tottenham on the final day of the season it was still in the balance and you scored a very special goal oh, it's, uh, Andy
0: Cole can he get him?
2: Half time comes out, the manager walks over to me and says, right calling you're going on and I was, I was a bit surprised. I mean we're back in the game in one one he said me you're going on get go and get us the winner so going at half time it's, it's my first touch, nev cuts on his left foot, chips the ball forward, I take it down in one touch, let it drop, and then ultimately, as soon as it drops, I see walks, take a little step forward and I lob the keeper, so I lob that, and then it it goes in and for me. At that time, I am just thinking to myself, oh my God, it's actually gone in. <laughs> you know? It's a slow motion thing. And it's, so when it goes in, if everyone looks at me celebrating, I start tearing off. I try to get to the bench to celebrate with Jack. One of the boys collared me and uh, nearly strangled me, so I didn't make it over to the bench. That for me was a really, really special, special goal. You know, and I, I look back on it even more so now because, like I said, in 95, what happened in 95 was a bit of a disappointment. I remember my son being born, missing the birth due to, you know, playing against Southampton to, to try and ensure that we can get to the final day to win it against West Ham, which we didn't do. So all these things come into my mind. I'm saying to myself, man, football's a funny game. <laughs> That's the full circuit has gone for me. Neville, blocked by-
0: me west ham united somehow survived and again it fell to andy cole the great predator and it wouldn't go in
1: it was almost like an onslaught wasn't it i mean it, you could not have had more chances or more bad luck and it, and it and it wasn't as if you were missing chances okay there were a few missed chances but it was terrific save by luda McClosco. it was clearance off the line it was it just seemed to be that the stars were aligned in blackburn's favour that day i mean they lost the game and still managed to win the title after that it all finished and you sort of processed it did it play on your mind for that long a period I and mean, you are talking 4 years here you know the west ham game is 95 and when you then win the title for the club against tottenham it's 99 that's 4 years was it on your mind, at the back of your mind somewhere?
2: Yeah, it, it, it was always on, on, the, on the back of my mind. I took it personal that we were, we hadn't gone on to win the, win the league. And I'm saying myself, Alex and brought me in for that reason, to help him go on and win the league that year. And for whatever reason, it didn't work out the way I would have liked to work out. So I, I, I really did take it upon myself. You know, I was bitterly disappointed that that season. I remember when the season finished and I went on my summer holiday. I didn't really enjoy it so all I kept thinking about was, you know, what happened against West Ham, how we lost the title that year. It, it was gut wrenching. But like I said, football is a game that a few years later kind of like replicates itself. You know, and that's like replicating itself for me four years later by being able to score the winner against Tottenham in the fashion that I did. Knowing that. We're going to win the league at Old Trafford in front of our home fans. And this is exactly what they deserve You know, from me for what happened four years ago. So, yeah, it it did come on my mind. I can't lie because there's no point lying. There's no point in this bravado thing. I mean, it, it's, it's not about bravado. It's about trying to bring the best you can out of yourself.
1: As you say, football has a funny way of, of providing redemption, doesn't it? it? It is amazing in that regard. Let's talk about England because... Um, that was a big part of your career without being a big part of your career. I mean, when you look back at that England career, do you think you were a victim of bad luck? There were so many strikers at the time vying for positions. You had a manager who publicly once said you needed 20 chances to score a goal. Did you just feel as if the circumstances weren't aligned for you to become the England striker that many thought you would be?
2: Yeah, it 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 was... Uh, like that, And there was a lot of politics as well. Politics should, shouldn't should be in football, but politics is in football. I remember when I was at Newcastle and um, I was listening to David Davis at the time I speak to Kevin on the phone. Kevin was giving, I mean, David Davis was giving Kevin every reason why Terry Venables didn't want me in the England squad at the time. Obviously, I, I was struggling with um, compartment syndrome, uh, what everyone was calling shin splints. And I wasn't training week in, week out like Newcastle, but I'm still playing and still scoring goals. And I remember listening to the conversation, the conversation was like, oh, you know, um, obviously Andrew's struggling with his uh, shin splints, you know, we can use that and say he's struggling with shin splints, that's why Terry's not going to put him in the England squad and all that. And then after that comes out, it's like, oh, we're not going to give out caps like confetti. That was a strange comment when you say, You're not going to give out caps like confetti, because ultimately, if I'm scoring goals, which I'm supposed to do as a centre-forward, that's what centre forward is had to do to get an England squad or get an England team was do just that. So wh- when it happened there, as I, I was asking myself, it's going to be difficult for me to play for England. Then I've had three other managers. Uh, you mentioned there, Glenn coming out with, I needed all these chances to score goals. And yeah, I look back at that now as a compliment because ultimately, if I need those chances to score goals, that means I'm getting some really good positions to miss those chances. So that speaks volumes about me as a player and how good I am at getting those positions to miss those chances. So that's all a compliment to me now. Now, I, I knew what Glenn was trying to do because at that time, I, I never really saw eye to eye with Glenn. He was an unbelievable player. Unbelievable player. But his man- management skills were very, very poor. And I wasn't the first person to say that or the last. So when he was coming out with all those things, at the time, yeah, I was bitterly disappointed. But like I said, looking back now, I turned around and said, to myself, well, it doesn't bother me because if I did take all those chances I would be way and beyond the highest goal score in the Premier League with only taking one penalty and that's, that's the way I look at things now so when people come out with these comments yeah, really, they need to actually think before they speak Beckham's free kick diving header back to him cushion header down to Heskey here's Andy
0: Cole oh!
1: When you do look back at that England career, um, do you cherish that one goal against Albania? Did you see that as the elite part of your career, the, the peak of your career, playing for your national team and scoring a goal?
2: That should be the peak part of your career. That should be. I remember when I got the goal against Albania, I was absolutely delighted. Unfortunately, I missed the game after due to suspension and I don't think I played again. You know, but that is supposed to be the peak of anyone's career, playing for you, whatever your respective national team. For me, it wasn't like I, I never felt like that was the peak of it for me. I always felt like playing for, for Manchester United in the Champions League, that was the peak of my career because I knew every other week I playing against some of the best defenders in the world and still causing them problems and still scoring goals
1: you'd been the man the nine the number one striker at manchester united for 5 6 years before you eventually ended up moving on when you found out you were leaving was it a mixture of sadness was it inevitable did you feel or did you feel yourself actually it's probably the best time for me too
2: for me personally me moving on from manchester united was me being totally me the manager knew me he knew I I wasn't an individual like I sit around on his hands. You know, I always want to contribute in some way, you know. If I wasn't starting games and contributing in that way, I didn't feel I was doing my job. I felt worthless. I, I knew I had to contribute. Cause that's that's just the way I've been brought up, you know. Contribute. Never You're not idle. Don't sit on idle hands. And even if I, people used to turn and say, Coley, why do you feel that way? Because I'm, I'm used to working. I mean, my parents go out working, my granddad and... I know what hard work's about. So when I left Manchester United, I didn't want to sit on the bench. Uh, So I remember sitting down and speaking with Alex Ferguson many times about this. And he kept saying to me, you don't have to leave. You can stay. You can stay as long as you like. You're going to get your games. You're going to get your games. But my games weren't against the big teams. I'm not being disrespectful. It could be like the Boltons or the Ipswiches or the Coventrys. You know, those are the kind of games I was going to be playing in. Even if I got a hat trick, in that game you know you come to the Champions League game on a Tuesday or Wednesday night I'm not playing and I found that really frustrating and I, I knew then I, I, I couldn't do it I,
1: I couldn't do it you moved on Blackburn loads of goals Fulham to Manchester City to Portsmouth did the role change that you played over time
2: the role never changed for me I had the same hunger same desire I always want to do well for my team I always want to try and score goals and make all the punters leave the stadium happy. I always said, you know, if it worked out the way it should have worked out at Blackburn, I'd have been retired by as most probably 33, 34, because that was my aim. But it didn't work out the way I wanted it to work out when I was at uh, Blackburn, you know? So when you mention all the other clubs there, I think I was off going around looking for a home, you know, somewhere I could find comfortable and be able to chill out and enjoy the last couple of years of my career.
1: Still to come on up front with Andy Cole. He discusses why he left Blackburn. And I remember saying to John Williams at
2: the time, and said, "Look, John, here, I said, I'm going to have to move on. If I don't move on, he will have to sack me, because the relationship between me and Graham was rotten. It was a toxic relationship from on day one." Towards King wanted three touches.
0: But let in Cole. Andy Cole has done it for Blackburn.
1: You moved around, actually, a few times towards the end of that career. What considerations did you take when making those decisions? Was it someone allowing you a certain number of games, a promise to start in the big matches, who you were playing with, the manager, the club, the location, the wage? What was it?
2: For me, like I said, when, when I left Manchester United, and went, went to Blackburn. Blackburn, ultimately, should have been my last club. The relationship I had with Graham Souness at that time was, was very, very poor. And I remember saying to John Williams at the time, I said, look, John, I'm going to have to move on. If I don't move on, you will have to sack me. Because the relationship between me and Graham was rotten. It was a toxic relationship from day one. So when I was at Fulham, I'm the kind of guy that I I love. I love my children. I'm not any different than anyone else. But I struggle without my children. So I end up saying, well, well, I'm not with the kids every day. Oh, man. Right. Yeah, it's nice being back in London. But I need to be with my kids. I end up moving back to uh to the northwest where I go to Manchester City to be with my kids again. So every move up, move I ultimately made was about my family, my children in the end. You know when I left Manchester City and went to Portsmouth, that was just down of Manchester City being very tight. You know, Portsmouth was offered me a two-year contract. Manchester City turned and said, "No, no, we're not prepared to offer you a two-year contract. We're only going to give you a one." So I'm saying to myself, "Well." I can actually play for another couple of years yeah? yeah, What I want to do, so you might as well do that. The whole family could prepared to move down. You play for another couple of years. So, like I said, every move I made after that was, it wasn't was driven by his finances. always driven by my family, my kids, or my belief that I could continue to play for another couple of years or whatever it was.
1: You mentioned um, that you had a difficult relationship from day one with Graham Souness. did you not have a meeting prior to signing, or have any flavour that that could be the case before you put pen to paper on the on, on the move?
2: I mean, me and Graham are getting a lot better now, and I'm, I must state that as well. We're getting a lot better now. I think Graham's, I mean, he's mellowed a hell of a lot. But when I met Graham, Graham's a very smooth operator. He speaks very well, as I say to people. Graham could sell ice to the Eskimos. You know, Graham was that, he was that charming and cool. So when I sat down and spoke to him, I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, this guy, he's a cool guy, you know. Ultimately, he understands the game. He's the top midfield player in his generation, unbelievable midfield player. When I signed, when I put pen to paper and was at Blackburn, that's when I realised, oh, okay, okay, okay. The man who can sell ice to the Eskimos, he's not that guy, is he? He's a totally different guy.
1: What, so sort I, I of guy, what sort of guy was he? What, what, what do you mean? As a manager, was he just a hard taskmaster? Did he expect too much? What What? What was it?
2: Graham, Graham was very much an old school manager. Do it my way or if you don't do it my way, this is going to happen. Oh, hold up, hold up. It's not a case of doing it your way. I, I mean, I look at it this way. I'm, I'm a grown man. I've achieved what I've achieved in the game. You know I mean, so I can't expect you to be talking to me like I'm an idiot because I'm not an idiot. You know, I, I can't have that. You know, and, and that's what it was like. Well, I'm telling you to do this, so you have to do this. I "Say, no, Graham, I don't have to do anything.
1: That, that's a no, sort you... of impression that everyone gets about Sir Alex, though. It was his way or, or the highway. But was there a difference in the way that he conducted himself, which was such a stark contrast when you went directly between Sir Alex at Old Trafford to Ewood Park under Graham Souness?
2: Totally, totally different. Now, the mannerisms are different. I mean, Graham, Graham was an individual, and I, I can laugh now, like I said, the relationship we had then to what we have now is totally different you know but Graham's an individual he he, he want to sit down and talk to you about how many european cups he'd won and he'd done this and he'd done that he would do this to you in a game and do that to you again you tell me I say, so and this is my manager of a football club he you can't be talking to me to players like that you know i mean you, you're belittling players that obviously' never played at your level you know and look at you as Graham Souness, the unbelievable player he was. But you're belittling these guys. Those are the kind of things that I, I couldn't get my head around.
1: You have spoken about how you've had a, a little problem with Kevin Keegan. You didn't get on particularly well with Glenn Hoddle and you weren't impressed by his management skills. And you've fallen out with um, Graham Souness. Do you think that that happened on several occasions it probably happens between most players and managers but do you think it happened more high profile with you because you were quite happy because of the character that you are to voice your dissatisfaction when somebody behaved towards you in a manner which you didn't particularly like where some players might just sort of shrink and whatever maybe it's to do with being a striker and being the man, being the, the number nine, being the one who can take the pressure, that you actually felt confident enough to be able to stand up to the manager.
2: That comes from my upbringing. My mum always used to say when I was a kid, speak your mind. And I got to the stage whereby I'm prepared to accept a lot. I'd accept, I'd accept. And then all of a sudden I said, no, nah, that's it. That's it. We have to stop now. But if you don't stop, you're going to continue to take liberties. And that's, that's what it was with me in, in my career. I'll accept, I'll accept, I'll accept. And I'll her i no, that's enough, that's enough. Man. Now I'm going to voice my opinion. And naturally, you come across managers who are not going to like what you've got to say. Yeah? And that happened a few times in my career, when I'll come out and said, no, nah, this is enough. you Because know, no, one, no one's expecting it. And I think even more so, no one expects it from an individual who's quiet.
1: I was going to ask, and it was on my list of questions, which manager got the best out of you? But I don't think I need to, to ask that question, do I?
2: No, no, def- definitely not. Alex Ferguson was unbelievable. Best manager I could ever hope hoped to have played for. He was a manager that, in that part of my career, was perfect for me, absolutely perfect for me. Why? He knew what I was as an individual. You know, And I think once managers understand what they've got in each player individual-wise, now they get the best out of them, that's exactly what they do. And Charlotte Ferguson with me he was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. He knew what he wanted from me. He knew how to get the best out of me. He knew when I was up, he knew when I was down, he knew when I was in a good mood. And there's, there's not a lot of managers who can do that, especially when you've got I don't know you work with 20year players each and every day, you know, to judge each and every characters every day and to now to get the best out of that individual. Uh, it's phenomenal. I mean, managers who used to challenge me I used to laugh at myself because ultimately it didn't matter how much you scream and shout at me if I didn't want to give it to you you can scream and shout all you like so you've got to have another way to be able to deal with that situation and that's what Sir Alex Ferguson could do with me he knew how to deal with every situation I was in whatever mood I was in he knew how to deal with that mood it's like he was one step ahead of me at times and that's how good he was
1: you have had your health issues over the last few years. How are you feeling now?
2: For me, it's, it's day by day. It is day by day. It's an illness that, to be brutally honest, I don't want. Hate is too strong a word. I dislike. But I know there's so many other people in this position uh, that ultimately I try and draw strength of and they look at me and try and draw strength of me. But it's... Oh, it's, it's a tough one. It's a very, very tough, tough illness. Mentally, it's tough. Physically, it's tough. And to be able to deal with it on a daily basis is one of the toughest battles I've, ever, I've had to come across.
1: For people who don't know, how restricting is it for you?
2: Uh, but it's very restricting for me. When, when you come from a sporting background,
1: and that's all you've done all your life, and ultimately
2: to be told that you can't do certain things anymore, or if you do do it, you've got to do it at a low level. He do no, I, I can't do things at a low level. I mean, i played football for 20 odd years. And now someone said to me, well, oh, you need to slow down a little bit. It's hard. It's very, very hard. It's a fatigue illness as well. And if it's fatigue illness, you end up sleeping. Your medication then makes you sleep a little bit more as well. So it's, it's a double edged sword. And it's, um, it's a tough one. It's really, really tough.
1: Well, look, I, I, I do hope that we've had a. A great hour together, just looking back at some of the the top moments. I do want to test you if that's okay, because at the end of these interviews, we've been testing our number nines. We've called it the perfect hat trick. It's three quick questions, and we want to know how well you know yourself. Um, now, not everyone gets all these right, by the way, so uh, don't worry if you can't. But I've got three questions for you to end the yeah. interview. Your first season in the Premier League, you scored two hat tricks for Newcastle: one in November and one in February. Do you know who they were against?
2: <laughs> oh my! Uh, Liverpool might have been one. Sellers, Cole, 3-0 Andy
0: Cole. Another
1: for Andy Cole. I'm not sure who the other one is. I've not got a clue. Coventry City. Do you not remember no. at all? I don't know. No, I don't know where it was at. <laughs> OK, remember, let's, let's, let's get closer to the present day. 1999, you were in that famous comeback win in Turin in the Stadio del Alpine. Zaghi scored twice early in the game. Um, it put Manchester United in what seemingly was an impossible position. But they came back, scored three goals and went to the Champions League final. Can you name the three goal scorers for Manchester United that night? Uh, skip, Yorkie. Me. York.
0: he skip through. It's Dwight York. He's brought down by Peruzzi. finish finishing off. Full speed ahead. Barcelona.
1: it was an amazing game Stam off the line five goals York off the inside of the post Irwin off the inside of the post that Juve team had Zidane in Antonio Conte as the captain and, and that shows I think how great Manchester United that great Manchester United team was um, it's a personal one for me because I remember commentating on it you moved to Portsmouth for a season who did you score your first Portsmouth goal against?
2: first Portsmouth goal oh man I know it was at Fratton Park, I think.
1: Yeah. I can't remember who it was. It was West Ham United. That's it. 14th of October at Fratton Park. Day before
2: my birthday. <laughs> I should remember that one, really.
1: You've been listening to Upfront with Andy Cole. And if you missed any of the show or want to catch up, you can download the podcast from the Talksport Daily feed available on Apple Podcasts, Acast or Spotify. The Premier League All Access
0: podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. The latest odds, we set them. Form guides, we've got them. Expert opinions, we share them. The best fans in the world deserve the best. Be match day ready before the whistle blows with Ladbrokes. Odds update on TalkSport with Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labbrooks.com, 18, plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh.